today's very special Lombardia-centric uh, episode of the Bellness Podcast is brought to us by good friends at Whoop. You've heard me talk about Whoop on this podcast before. It is a wrist-worn training tool that measures your heart rate like 100 times per second to help you gauge your exertion, but more importantly, gauge your recovery. Let's say you go on a really hard training session or you have a race. Uh, a couple days later, you want to get back on your bike, do some intervals. Well, hey, you check your Whoop, and your Whoop has been measuring variations in your heart rate, and it's going to tell you whether you're fully recovered to start training really hard again or whether you need some extra recovery. I was just on the phone the other day with a coach talking to me about how uh, the Whoop device has actually its really revolutionized the way he trains his athlete. His star athlete had a couple of really hard days back-to-back-to-back, and they decided to give her another couple extra days of rest because the Whoop device said that her heart rate was still pretty elevated. Uh, You can get your hands on a Whoop. Go to Whoop.com, and they have a special deal for listeners of the podcast. Uh, Type in the code VELO, V-E-L-O, at checkout, and you get 15% off a Whoop device. Uh, Try it out. Check it out. uh, I've heard nothing but good stuff, and like I said, athletes are finding it to be really helpful in convincing them maybe they need a little bit more recovery. Thanks again to Whoop. This week, our show is also brought to us again by VeloSwap, country's largest used bike swap and expo coming up November 2nd at the National Western Complex in Denver. Come just bask in the glory of used bike parts for sale at VeloSwap. I will be there. The Velo staff will be there. Thousands of other bike fans will be there buying and selling used bike gear Come check it out. Tickets are for sale. Go to VeloNews.com. Click the banner at the top of the page. You can buy yourself some tickets. I will see you at VeloSwap. Okay, let's get on with the show. Uh, Welcome back to the VeloNews Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from a very nice, very pleasant fall Monday here in Boulder, Colorado. We already had our first snow of the season this past week. People are skiing already. The transition from summer to winter happened again in the blink of an eye. Uh, and, and it also seemed to be happening on the television this weekend as we watched Il Lombardia, the Giro de Lombardia. The race of the falling leaves looked very pleasant out there in northern Italy, but there were definitely leaves turning color, falling from the trees, uh, wonderful affair. Uh, on today's episode, we're going to talk all about Lombardia. We're going to break down the action. Then we're going to talk about the champion, Mr. Balcomolema, and the significance of this victory for his career. Balcomolema is a guy who has been with us for many, many years. Uh, he's had some pretty impressive results, but I am arguing he, he lacked that signature win, which he got this weekend at Lombardia. Uh, then we're going to talk all about this block of Italian racing, uh, Lombardia, you know, it caps off about two weeks of Italian one-day races, very similar to what you see with the Belgian races. Um, and there's change, there's ideas, there's thoughts of what this block of racing could grow into. And then before we get out of here, we're going to have a little debate because it is also awards time, the end of the season. Um, I am joined again by Mr. Andrew Hoodie. Hoodie, we missed you last week. You were doing some physical therapy to get back from that broken collarbone and shoulder injury. Uh, how are you doing? Are you you on the mend? Are you mended? What is your percentage of mending right now? 
I am uh, mending, still is the, I think, accurate way to describe it, Fred. Not quite all the way back. It's like these old bones heal slow. It's, uh, you know, I'm taking the old kind of Band-Aid approach. No surgery yet, trying to hold out to see if the sucker uh, kind of gets back into one piece before going under the knife. But uh, my patience is running out, man. I want to get back on the bike. I want to get back. I uh, can't miss ski season. So uh, next time we chat, I might be actually had recently operated my shoulder finally. Uh, Hoodie, I mean, this is a cycling podcast, so we must ask you questions about performance-enhancing drug use. Have you considered PEDs at this point? Human growth hormone, baboon growth hormone, whale growth—I mean, any type of hormones or steroids or like just various substances that you can inject into the wound to make it grow back at a uh, illegally fast rate. Well, I did let my racing license slip a few years ago, so I'm no longer in the testing pool, Fred. Ah, so I don't, I, I don't think that's an issue. <laughs> I don't know. Some of these uh, athletes, you know, you hear you, they get it, it, on the um, surprise visit list for USADA, and they're there for life. And they're like 10 years after they've retired, and they're still getting the uh, the vampires showing up at their doorstep asking for blood. And they're like, come on, man. You know, I'm, I'm retired. I got kids now. And, I, you know, I take all sorts of fun PEDs recreationally, which is uh, <laughs> it's legal now. <laughs> It's legal in half of America these days. That's true. Very legal here in Colorado. Uh, Hoodie, let's get into it. You watched Lombardia. I watched Lombardia. The final monument of the season, the race of the falling leaves. It was a thrilling race. We saw a number of heavy favorites come in to do battle. Guys like Primoz Roglic, Egan Bernal, Mike Woods, Alejandro Valverde. And in the end, it was a what I would call a second-tier favorite, who escaped with the win, Mr. Mr. Balcomolema attacking on the Chiviglio with 18 Ks to go. And the group just kind of let him go, dangled him out there. And when they finally gave chase, too little too late, Mr. Molema was able to cross the line with his hands in the air, uh, coast across the line. I saw a great video appear on Twitter of the Molema family watching this at home and his kids like watching their dad slowly coast across the line to win, and they looked really happy. Uh, Hoodie, what what did you make of this uh, performance by Mr. Molema, and what did you make of the strategies and tactics by the pre-race favorites and how it played out? Yeah, it was it was a hard race on Saturday uh, after really some pretty exciting racing all, all the way across all those Italian one days. We saw Michael Woods get that big win, you know, just snap the elastic to Valverde at uh, Milano Torino. Torino, I mean, that, that was one of the most impressive things I saw all season. Uh, and on the Saturday, Lombardia, you know, the race of the falling leaves, uh, a lot of hype around the race, but you know, we'll talk about this in a little while, in a little bit here. It doesn't quite have that same kind of uh, juice that some of the other monuments have the rest of the season. But Still, great race. Molema, you know, just did the did the old school tacket, man. Just dropped the hammer, and the big favorites just all looked at each other. That's what happens when you in that situation where not a lot of teammates in that front group. It's every man for himself at, at that point. And like you said, when uh, he had that twenty second gap over that penultimate climb, it really was just his motor against the chase, and there really was not an organized chase. We saw Roglic give a little run. They reeled him in. Then Valverde had to go. That was too late. And by then, Val, uh, Molema was off the front. Balke got his molament. You know, I had to, tweet, I, had to tweet, I had to tweet that out the other day. I got some mixed results on that one. But uh, huge win for Balke. 
I agree, kind of career-defining victory, one that he really needed, and a big boon for the, the Trek Segafredo franchise. You know, they had to win the Worlds uh, the week or so before with Mr. Peterson, of course, winning for the Danes, but racing in that rainbow jersey all next year in the Trek Segafredo colors. How many times have you seen Balcomolema do a long-range attack like this that gets shut down? I feel like... Um, Giro stages, tour stages. I, when I saw him initially go, my thought was, oh, here we go again. Balcomolema is attacking too early. He's going to be the first big salvo that's going to lead to what will be the decisive move. Um, and I was pretty excited to see him take the win, but I was very surprised to see the guys hesitate like that on the Chiviglia when he did go. Um, I, I, I was playing armchair psychologist and I was like, you know, has Balcomolema attacked early and been brought back so many times that now at this moment when he does it, everyone just assumes it will come back. Everyone looks around and assumes, oh, you're going to be the one to bring him back. What did you make of that hesitation? Well, it was one of those times, Fred. You know, we've seen it before with Moloma. Like you said, he's a guy that's always banging around in the top 10. I mean, he's top 10 in almost every race he starts, top 10 in the Grand Tour, top 10 in the one days, top 10 in everything he does. He's one of the, he's like one of the, undoubtedly one of the best cyclist in the peloton but there's always that scenario where there's someone a little bit faster than him in a, in a reduced bunch sprint someone who can climb a little bit faster than him on the mountaintop finish you know someone who can take more time out in the time trial and he can't hit that podium in the grand tour so he's always banging around but he never gets the scenario that this stacks up for him and chapeau to him for for having the 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 gumption to attack in that moment and it really turned out to be the right moment because there weren't a lot of teammates to chase didn't have the numbers in the back. So when he was gone, it was really down to a mano a mano fight and, you know, emotional moment for him coming across the line winning. I think his parents were at the finish line. You mentioned his kids were watching at home on TV. So he, he said it was the biggest win of his career for sure. Yeah. I was thinking that everyone then looked at Roglic to do the chasing and Roglic did take up the chase a bit, but then he wanted other people to go. I mean, it was your classic. Everybody looks at everyone else and expects them to do uh, do the work. And I think everyone kind of felt like maybe Roglic was the strongest guy or at least had the biggest punch uh, and and they wanted him to work. And, you know, I, I, I do wonder if this was a bit of uh, the guys let one slip through their fingers. You know, we came in talking all about Bernal, talking all about Roglic, Valverde, Woods. And, you know, you sit around and you wait for... 20, 30 seconds before giving chase. And a guy like Molama, he's a class rider. He's going to, he's going to take that win. Um, I was wondering if this is, this was a race that maybe the guys were just kind of willing to lose. I mean, everyone wants to win it, but when you start seeing people wait around that long, um, I don't know. I mean, did the, did these contenders play their cards wrong? Who played their cards the worst? Yeah, you have to look. You have to look at uh, the guys who didn't win. Obviously, didn't play their cards right. I think. I think you're right. They left a little bit too late. I think when Roglic went, I was surprised no one went with them because Roglic obviously on great form this past week. And I think that. Uh, I think. I think that you're right, though, in terms of the psychology of the situation. I think that all of them looked at each other and said, you know, all of us, we're going to chase down Molema, so who's going to pick up the chase? And they, they did just leave it too long. Once he had that 20-second gap over the top of the final climb, it was game over, and I think everyone knew it at that point. Yeah, and like you said, look, Molema's a class rider. He's strong. He's not punchy. He's, he doesn't have the accelerations of some of these other guys in the peloton, but he's strong, and we saw that in the last 18Ks. So he has 30 seconds at the top of the Chiviglio. They peg it back a little bit on the flats into the final climb. The climb's name is eluding me at the moment. And, you know, we start to see the gap 
close. It gets down to 20 seconds, inside 20 seconds. But Maloma has the diesel engine. He has the power to keep it going uh, even at the end of a big race like that. So, you know, the gap by the end wasn't even particularly close. He did what he does best, which is put his head down and suffer. Um, I, I was there in 2017 when he won his Tour de France stage into Le Puy en Valais, and it was a very similar type scenario. He attacked out of a group and then just was able to kind of time trial in for the win. So I, I felt like it was a very fitting Molema win. I mean, he he did the early attack. It stuck. He was able to put his head down and time trial and suffer his way in. And the guys who maybe were a little bit, you know, stronger than he was, counted him out, underestimated him, and he took advantage of it. So chapeau to you, Balka Molema. Now, Hoodie, as you mentioned there before, he's a guy who's been in our life for a while. I mean, he Balka is 32 years old, but I feel like I feel like he's been in the pro cycling space for decades and decades and decades. I mean, he has been a Grand Tour guy, a Monuments guy. He's had like four careers, I feel like, in, you know, the 10 or so years in which he's been in our life as a pro rider. Yeah, he's been, he's been banging around a, a lot, like you mentioned before he came on air, that he won the Tour of Avenir all the way back in 2007. I didn't even remember that. So he's been around that long. And, uh, you know, he's been on some of these big teams. He was a big Rabobank guy. And he came to uh, Trek in 2015. They, they kind of uh, recruited him to really be their uh, go-to GC guy to build a, build a team around Boca Moloma uh, as they were kind of rebuilding that franchise uh, five years ago. And I remember that uh, Tour de France 2016, you know, it was all coming together for Boca. I think he came out of the final time trial, second place on GC behind Froome, looking pretty solid for the podium, which would have been a huge achievement for him and and that franchise. And just, uh, I remember he slipped out on, on a wet descent in the Alps. I think it was on the, not the last mountain stage, the penultimate mountain stage, but the real hard mountains were behind him. And all he had to do was get across the finish line to Paris and hit the podium. And just, you know, that's 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 the luck between, uh, that's the difference between you can you can do all the right stuff and then you get a puncture or, or just misjudge a corner and, and just weeks and months in years of hard work and just evaporate in an instant. So that's the cruelty of the sport, Fred. We talk about it every week. And then the beauty of it is when you get your payback, it's like in this sport, if you just keep banging your head against the wall and if you're good and you do the work, the results will come. But it's just always amazes to me how 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 dedicated and how much work these guys got to put into these races. And we'll see riders that will never win a race in their entire career. Yeah, I mean, there was a very realistic scenario in which Balcomolema could have had his entire career, you know, had some real close calls at Grand Tours, win a Tour de France stage. I mean, you know, amazing career up to that point, but not really had that signature monument win. And uh, he got it in San Sebastian. I could have been happier. The more and more I thought about it and the more and more I started to think about his career, the happier I got for the guy. Um, you're right. 2016, this amazing Tour de France for him. He's right at the podium. Let's not forget, he was also with Chris Froome and Richie Port on Mont Ventoux when the infamous motorcycle crash happened. And Chris Froome had to, you know, jog up the mountain in his clickety-clack bike shoes. Like, Balka Molema was in that group. He was able to jump back on his bike and make it to the finish. And it was his finishing time that they awarded both Port and Froome at the finale after the whole motorcycle thing. So, I mean, he was he was right there. He's a strong guy. And we saw that in other Grand Tours. I mean, he I feel like Balka Molema has had... Like he's been involved in some of the most the most dramatic best Grand Tour battles over the last decade. He's just been like the guy 
in back of the guy, you know, like it's, it's like, kind of like the it's kind of like the, the character actor, you know, yeah. it's like the Johnny Depp's of the world get the big paychecks, and then you you need the guy to play the straight man, and that's Pokemalama. Yeah, you see the photo of like the guys raising the American flag at Iwo Jima, you know, from the from the famous photo and like Bocamola was like standing next to him waving, you know, he's like, yeah, I was right there too. So it was right there, you know, 2011. Um, it's the coming out party for Chris Froome and Bradley Wiggins at the Welta against Juan Jose Cobo. Uh, I think most of us had forgotten that Bocamolama was in that race until a couple weeks ago when Kobo had his retroactive suspension and boom, Bocamolama is now all of a sudden onto the podium in third place. He was right in there. I went back yeah. and watched some of those races and it was, it was like, oh, there, there he is, Bocamolama. You know, he's, he's that Rabobank guy who's so strong, never really attacking and never really punching away from people. But able to follow the wheels, kind of a diesel engine. My earliest Balcomolama memory actually was from my first go-around at Velo News. In 2008, I went and spent some time at the USA Cycling Development House and talked with TJ Van Garderen, who was still part of this Rabobank development squad. And oh yeah, you know, and he's telling me about the, the names of these riders who are on the Rabobank development team, these guys I've never even heard of. And he's like, oh, we have this guy who literally is the strongest cyclist I've ever seen, you know, and it was Balcomolema. He was like, Balcomolema is going to completely eat the world. You know, he is in his early 20s now and watch out, everyone. Balcomolema is coming. And he did come. I mean, he, you know, he was close to the podium in 2016. He was there at 2017 Giro d'Italia when Tom Dumoulin won. He has had all these consistent rides at the Tour. I remember one year, it was Belkin and Balcomolema and Lawrence Tandam were both battling for the podium at the Tour de France up until the very end. And, you know, there was like a one bad day type of thing. Um, and he fell out of contention for the podium. But he's he's had these strong rides. And for me, I think a turning point came at... 2017, when Contador joins Trek, so Bauka is no longer the Tour de France guy. They send him to the Giro. Dumoulin wins the Giro, and all of a sudden, Dumoulin is now the big Dutch Grand Tour guy. And Bauka goes out to the Tour de France and is a stage hunter. And I remember I was like, wow, you know, here's this guy with this incredible pedigree, and he is a stage hunter at the Tour. And I remember from that tour, because that was, you know, uh, I believe Dumoulin was there too, and all the Dutch journos, or maybe he wasn't. But the, the Dutch journos were always interested in Balcomolema, but he didn't have the same amount of hype around him, even with the Dutch guys, as, as Dumoulin. It almost felt like Dumoulin's ascendance kind of stole Balcomolema's thunder as a, as a Grand Tour guy. Yeah, he's kind of like a cycling zealot. He's always kind of there in the scene, standing yeah. next to the next to the big star. But you know, I have to say, Mo, Molema, he's really a nice guy. He's one of these kind of quiet guys. Just does his job. He doesn't like all the attention on the hoopla. So he wasn't a guy who really stepped into that limelight. You know, he wanted to perform well, but I don't think he really enjoyed a lot of that pressure that came with being the team leader of a GC uh, operation of, of a World Tour level team. So I think when uh, uh, guys came in, like you said, Contador, Richie Port, uh, and now Nibali comes into the organization next year. You know, I think he's almost happy about that. When uh, when your man there, Dumoulin, came up to the scene and suddenly became the, the center of a gravity for all the Dutch media. And, they're, and the Dutch media are just as crazy, as enthused as, as any cycling media out there. More you know, acid wash jeans than other the cycling media, though. <laughs> acid wash, <laughs> tight acid wash jeans and curly hair. <laughs> and big teeth. But we love our Dutch colleagues. Oh, they're the best. Uh, 
<laughs> oh, they're the best. And, uh, you know, they're always just, you know, right there with the, with the big story. So Boca was not one of these guys. He didn't really have that natural charisma. Not to say that he's an introvert, but he's kind of just a shy, quiet guy. that used to just do his work and go home and hang out with his kids. Um, so I think for him taking that step back, you know, for him was probably almost a relief. I don't know if he actually saw that as a demotion. I think he saw it more as like, well, yeah, let, let's let let Contador carry all the weights and I can just do my thing. And it's, it's, it's worked out pretty well. When you look at his season this year, man, it's like he had a great, great season. You know, he raced both the Giro and the Tour. He was banging around in the top 10 of the Giro and the Tour, you know, came close to winning a stage and in this fall he's just been almost impeccable so that Lombardia run everyone's calling a uh, a dark horse victory but when you look at just the results he's had since the end of the tour I mean he's been the one of the most consistent guys in the peloton yeah I mean at the Giro this year he was never accelerating away from everybody like Carapaz or like Lopez he's not one of these swashbuckling attackers but he's consistent so that a lot of times he's actually passing those guys after they run out of juice and you know is he was what? I mean, he was top 10 at the, at the Giro this year. Um, great ride from him. What, what, what I love about Boca Moloma too, and this is, I don't know, maybe an inside cycling media type thing is that um, he's a guy where like, he's so, he's very approachable at the races. I mean, for a guy with his results, with his pedigree, you know, you see some of these cyclists at the races from, you know, as, as a journal perspective where, okay, if you're going to talk to them, they want the PR guy there. They want to know exactly what you, you know, maybe they're a little too busy. Oh, I got to warm up in 15 minutes. I don't want to talk to you. And uh, I, I was looking back at some of my reporting from the UAE tour and even from, I think, Tour California, he was there and some of the Grand Tour stuff. And like, Balcomolema, you know, I, a lot of times I would be going up to him to ask him perspective on not about him and his race, but on wider cycling topics. Hey, what's the biggest difference between the way that the tour is raced versus the way that the Giro is raced? Hey, what's the biggest, you know, it's, it's early season. It's February. Is this a warm up race? Is this a race that people are taking seriously? Whatever. And Molema has these great insightful inter, uh, answers. He's, all, he would he would always be accessible, and you know he he was just he is this very thoughtful guy, and so I I would just say from a reporter and a media perspective, I've always appreciated Balcomolema as a guy who is this very high functioning cyclist, who um, you don't get some of the baggage that you get with other riders of his pedigree, where it's like, nah, I don't want to talk to you, eh, see the PR guy, eh, you know, one word answers or whatever, like. I don't know. Chapeau to you, Balka Molema. We're just going to sing your praises all, all episode. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. He is a very approachable guy. Always has interesting things to say. Uh, you know, whenever we were talking to him uh, at the races, again, you can approach him and ask him about uh, rider safety, extreme weather protocol, you know, the riders' unions. You know, he's one of these guys who will actually give you a, a pretty in-depth answer. So don't uh, confuse uh, perhaps a lack of charisma with you know uh, you know lacking any any sort of uh, insider professionalism. I mean, he's like one of the hardest working guys out there, one of the most professional riders you know you see out there who, who maybe has to you know has the engine and has to work to get the most out of it. He's not one of these guys who just wins on pure talent. You know he's not going to be like a Egon Bernal who just wins the Tour at 22 years old because he's just some freak of nature. Uh, but it's uh, he's like a working man's hero. Yeah. Fred. Have we convinced you listeners to be Balcomolema fans? I think Hoodie and I have tried our hardest. I mean, we've laid out a, I feel like we've laid out a very compelling argument. Uh, he's good with the media. He works hard. And uh, yeah, he's not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He's had to go out there and earn it. Chapeau to you, Balcomolema. I was very happy 
to see him and you win. Have, and you have to say, you know, who he beat. It's a all-star cast there, the Lombardia. You know, this these races really drew an elite field this year. I mean, this last week of racing uh, across northern Italy, sometimes overshadowed. Uh, but you look at, see the guys that uh, Moloma beat. You know, it's not like it's some little uh, kind of afterthought race like the Tour of Wang Chi, whatever is coming up this next weekend. You know, he beat uh, for, former world champion Valverde, Tour de France champion Egon Bernal, Liege Beston Liege champion uh, Fuglesang, Michael Woods, and Welt España champion Rogue, which were all in that chase group. So, world class victory by a world class guy. So, honey, let's get into it. I mean, you just mentioned there there was this um, this wealth of talent at Lombardia, and every year. I love watching Lombardia. I mean, it reminds me a bit of the Vuelta in that you have very strong riders, all of whom are on different levels of form. Some guys are trying to salvage form. Other guys are building into it. Everyone wants to win. Um, it's a very hard race, very hilly, extremely picturesque. And it comes at the end of this block of one-day races. Uh, some of these races, I cannot pronounce their names. These races all throughout Italy... It's the autumn classics, the the Italian fall classics. And there's, I'm going to put my entrepreneur hat on, Hoodie. I feel like there's more potential with these races. You know, there's six of these races all in a row. Uh, they get big marquee names to show up. Reminds me a bit of what we see with the, 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 the spring classics in uh, Belgium and northern France. Yet there's not the same international buzz around them. You don't see like... A bunch of different American tour groups taking everyone to the tour of Lombardy, like you see with Flanders and Roubaix, and you don't see the same amount of international hype. I feel like. Why do you? Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's an interesting question because um, I was thinking the same thing. You know, this is like really an ideal way to end the racing season in Europe. You know, you're in Northern Italy, one of the hotbeds of European cycling, some of these great courses, but all those races you mentioned, Fred, they're all over 100 years old, except one of them, I think. Uh, five, six of these races are among the oldest races in Italy and in Europe. So they have this kind of rich tradition. You know, it goes up through Lombardy, up there through the Northern parts of, uh, of Italy. It's really, you know, Lake Como up there around Torino, the Superga climb and the, where Michael Woods won the other day. Some of the iconic places of, of Italian cycling so it has all the ingredients really of being a great place to go ride your bike and watch some bike racing um, you know you'll see on TV you know, there's some fans there on the and, you know on the finish lines but it just doesn't have the same gravatas as as, uh, as the spring classic and I think most of it really comes down just to where it is in the calendar um, you know it's mid you know early to mid October uh, I think people are you know there's a bit of cycling fatigue perhaps out there. You know, both among the, the racers and the fans, maybe, and just where it is, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, schools are back in session, summer holidays are over, kind of at the tail end of the season. You know, everyone's thinking about skiing or cyclocross. So it just kind of comes as a, as a nice little aperitivo or digestivo, really, at the end of a, of a long season, but it's not really the main course. You know, in RCS, the organizers of the last three races, they're called Triticos, the, the uh, Tritiki or Tritico, these two groups of three races. The first one's the Tritico Lombardi, and the second one is the Tritico Atuno, the autumn triple. And so RCS runs these last races, and they are trying to kind of build up a little bit of excitement around it. You know, uh, the Milano-Torino race is kind of a big deal. There's the, the Grand Fondo they have on the Sunday after Lombardia. So 
they're doing what they can to try to get some excitement around these races to kind of build them up and do something like we see around Flanders Classics. I know the teams are committed to it because RCS, the organizers of the Giro and the Terreno, you know, they're working closely with the teams. They have some deals on some of these digital rights and some profit sharing deals in the back end. So the teams are committed. The teams like going to these races because you have these six one days stretched over uh, two weekends. So it's a nice block of racing. A lot of teams have their race headquarters up there. A lot of riders live around that area as well. Uh, so it has all the ingredients, and the teams are bringing their hitters. I mean, look at the lineup for all these big races. It's you know you can't can't really say you can't say this is not as good as any other racing the rest uh, throughout the season. This is a quality lineup. So all the ingredients are there. We just need to get the hipsters, man. It's like forget about. <laughs> Forget about the Tropro Leon. You know, this is where it's all happening, guys. Come on. Come on, you millennial hipsters. Yeah, just go to go to Northern Italy and go check out these races. So we have the Giro d'Emilia, GP Bruno Pagelli, and Trey Valli Varesini. That's the first block of racing, the first triple. And then Milano Torino, the Gran Piemonte, and then Il Lombardia. And I mean, Hoodie, you ever been to Lake Como? You ever been to uh, this part of the world before? Pretty romantic up there, Freddie. It's it's amazing. I went there after it would have been in two thousand eight after Mountain Bike Worlds in Val de Sole, and I spent five or six days there with a bicycle, just riding around. And I mean, it's unbelievable. It is so beautiful. The roads are so challenging and fun and perfectly engineered. The food is so good. The people are in just incredibly nice. I feel like we need to um, put a – just put a bat signal out there for cycling entrepreneurs in the United States to try and help our friends at RCS and uh, in Italy make this into more of a draw for American cycle tourism at this time of the year because I, I got to say, I mean, it is – it's probably the top five favorite places on the planet for me there. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's we were up there in the Giro this year at uh, Lago de Como, and uh, you know he's have a great dinner after a long ride. You get the great ambiance. You know, it's 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 one of the iconic places of cycling. And uh, well, I think we need to find some room in the budget next year, Fred, for me and you to go hang out there all week, obviously, and, and cover these important stories in in the peloton. Yeah, it's true, and and ride them, and so report on what the roads are like too. Be like, oh, oh. Lombardia, it's going to be hard because this climb was so tough. I, I was, you know, I was really, really suffering on the Madonna de Gisalo. Uh, wasn't even in the top 1,000 on the Strava segment. Um, I, I, I'm with you on that one. No, but, you know, it, they're, they're good watching. I feel like they do, you know, once the tour ends, there's, you know, August, there's a bit of a hole in enthusiasm. Then the Vuelta comes in and the real hardcore fans can get jazzed up depending on whether or not it's a good Vuelta battle. It usually is a good Vuelta battle. Um, and then and then the other high point is Worlds. And I think that, the, that maybe that's the hard part is that Worlds is this big block of enthusiasm. You know, all the races are televised, especially for Americans. This year, we had so many Americans to follow. And then the, the just sort of the steam is out of the tea kettle at that point. Like all the cycling enthusiasm around road cycling sort of dies after worlds. And we forget about these awesome races that are going on. 
Well, I think that's more our fault, though, isn't it? Because you look at the riders and the teams, and they all they all went all in for these races. And every one of these races, I ended up watching them all week, and they were just fantastic racing every day. And, you know, there's there's some argument to be made that maybe the racing season is too long. I mean, it goes from you know January all the way into October. You know, we still have the World Tour race in China, so you know it's ten months of racing. There's there's a pretty large school of thought out there. It's like, oh, we need to streamline the calendar, make it more concise, give it a narrative, you know, move these fall classics, move them up, so they're all kind of r- raced in a string. So there's no, you know, it's all just all the monuments all right in a row. It's kind of a nice kind of succinct string of one day races. You know, personally, I'm opposed to that kind of camp of thought. Um, Maybe I'm just old-fashioned, and I, in fact, I like the fact that there's 10 months of racing. I mean, it's like you don't want to have a baseball season that's condensed to three and a half months just because, you know, baseball can be pretty boring sometimes. But I like to watch a baseball game, and I like the fact that baseball season lasts about three and a half years between each World Series. But the thing is, I think the way these races are set up, you have to respect the tradition and the history of all these races. You can't just say for convenience sake or for the sake of making it more profitable for the team's Oh, you can sell more TV rights. Let's just whack out some of these races. No one watches them anyway. But all these races, like we said here in this last block of racing, all those races have over 100 years of racing history. And they're all backed by their communities. They're backed by the local clubs that organize and run them every year. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a joy. It's not something to complain about. Yeah, I think it was that, uh, well, that Rafa, Rafa roadmap that wanted to jettison some of these races and get rid of the world championships because no one pays attention to it, which I didn't, I didn't really follow that line of thinking. Um, shorten the uh, Giro and the Welta to two weeks each and sort of build this season-long narrative around the Tour de France. Um, I, I think that, that that way of thinking is maybe, you know, attractive to fans of American sports where, you know, okay, it builds towards some championship at the end of the year. But as a longtime follower of cycling, I'm, I'm with you, man. I kind of like the organic feeling of the cycling calendar, which is that you have multiple points of interest and multiple points for these riders to build and, um, you know, really try to win big races. Um, I think that Lombardia, you know, if it's not at the end of the season, maybe it loses even more luster. I mean, if you tried to pack it in after the Ardennes or something like that, maybe it totally gets lost in the shuffle. And then, of course, that way of thinking totally ignores the fact that, yeah, I mean, these races, these are... I mean, as important as they are to us as fans and as important as they are to the riders, like these races are are really important to the communities that host them. And that at the end of the day is the reason why they still go on. I mean, uh, they still go on because local governments in Northern Italy have festivals built around them and whole families have gone out and watched them for generations. And Torino likes having Morlin Milan Torino on that weekend. And if you remove that element from bike racing and try to have it be in this sort of, you know, centrally planned, you know, totalitarian government style, um, you know, single entity league, like you see with American sports where everything is, you know, you have the hive and the hive plans everything else around it. Um, I, I, th- I do think you lose some of the cultural impact of cycling that makes it makes it what we love and makes it important. Yeah, I think you've seen it in other sports too, like hockey. They took hockey out of Canada, took NASCAR out of the Southeast, and and I think those those sports 
perhaps have regretted some of those decisions, you know, and how they expanded perhaps and, and got away from their roots. And I think you're exactly right. A lot of these races would not exist if you do move the date, like the Tour Down Under. You know, it's it's held in that kind of block in January, not because it's good for the world tour, but it's because it's good for that community. It's that's the summer season in Australia. That's when it's uh, all the kids are out and they get 30, 40,000 people showing up just to watch that race every summer. And if they moved it back in the calendar into the middle of February, they said it would kill the race because the community gets a lot of financial benefit from having the tournament under in that kind of summer window. And if you moved it into another date that's maybe more streamlined for the world tour, the race wouldn't even exist. And I think that's probably true for a lot of these races around the calendars. You know, they've, you know, these races have been here for a long time for probably a, a lot of reasons that most of us don't even understand. Yeah. And if you move the Winnipeg Jets down to Dallas, eh, you don't get as many fans, eh? If you, oh, if you yeah. move the, uh, the, you know, the Kamloops hockey team down there to, uh, to Glendale in Arizona, no one's going to show up, eh? <laughs> yeah, you take a you take NASCAR out of uh, out of Alabama and you send it to uh, out to uh, you know Las Vegas, man. It just ain't the same. No, it's true. It's not. Well, here's hoping that the Italian classics stay put, stay where they where, where they are, and a year from now we will uh, talk about them and and all about how we wish more people would go to them. Um, hoodie, we're getting to the end of the season. We're getting to the end of the podcast. We're putting together our November December issue. Right now, the print magazine, which is our awards issue, we have lots of fun awards that we have given to cyclists, to races, to days of racing, teams, all that type of stuff. And um, I feel like there's been a lot of online chatter about a couple different awards that we need to sort of honorary awards that we need to hash out. Um, one of them is the um, male world tour road racer of the year. And the other one is sprinter. Of the year, two of these big awards. I think in some of the other ones, like you know, you know, female cyclists. I think that Mariana Voss is a clear winner, even though Annemiek van Vluten's World Championship ride after winning the Giro, uh, she has a pretty good case for that. But uh, just Voss won all season long big races. Um, let's start with Road Racer of the Year. Something that I feel like I've seen a lot of online chatter of, like Roglic versus Bernal versus Alaphilippe. On one hand, you have Roglic, who won all season long, took his first Grand Tour win. Next, you have Bernal, who won the Tour de France, hardest race of the year. And he won the Tour de Suisse, but whatever. Uh, and then finally, you have Alaphilippe, who he just seemed to win everything. Um, I mean, season long, especially that spring of dominance. Um, what are your arguments there? Who Out of those three... At this point, who are you casting your vote behind? Yeah, I mean, those three names stand out. Alaphilippe, Bernal, and Roglic. You know, there's some other riders there. We get you know, Remco, Vanderpool, Fuglesang, the list goes on. Uh, but those three riders, I think, stand out. But when you look at between those three, personally, I think that uh, Roglic and Bernal are just a little bit above Alaphilippe, just in terms of how much depth and consistency they've had across the season, right? I mean, they've they both have been winning going into this final weekend. They each won, well, well Rilich won twice in this last block of Italian racing. Bernal won one race. Um, Alaphilippe, you know, pulled a plug in his season. Um, when you look at uh, the stage racing across, you know, uh, Rilich won. Every stage race he started except the Giro, and he finished third. Uh, Bernal, basically the same. He won uh, Paris-Nice, Tour de Suisse, Tour de France, 
youngest rider ever to win the tour. So it's kind of a coin toss. I guess my my personal tipping point kind of comes down to like how these races were won. When you look at how hard Bernal had it at Tour de Suisse and how hard perhaps Roglic had it at Torino or even at Paris Nice, you look at those kind of races and say, man, you know, Roglic had to fight a little bit harder to win Torino than Bernal did had to win Paris Nice. And the same against Roman D, perhaps against Tour de Suisse. Tour de Suisse, a little bit bigger race, but pretty weak field there. Roglic goes into the Giro d'Italia as the hot favorite. Things didn't go as well for him, but he dug really deep and he still got third. And then to come back to win the Welta and to win two races in this final block. And when you compare that to Bernal, who just has – he's inside that Enios machine. I think for me, the fact also that those two last mountain stages were neutralized for Bernal just takes a little bit of a luster off that tour win. Not to say that it's not, not deserve it, but if I had to choose – and. I am choosing. For me, it's Roglic, just a little bit above Bernal because I think Bernal's going to be around and he'll be winning many, uh, many Rider of the Year awards in years to come. Yeah, but it's close. It's, it's very close. It's super close. I, at first, I was, I threw my weight behind Alaphilippe because of his impressive spring, but then I started to come around to it too, Hoodie, which is that you know you're looking through the entire season and Alaphilippe had a couple of really big opportunities in the fall. You know, he lined up for those races in Quebec. He called his season early. Uh, he didn't race Lombardia. He didn't have a great Worlds. And so, you know, none of these guys is perfect. Bernal crashed before he could race the Giro. Roglic had his Giro where he just wasn't quite strong enough. So no one was perfect. But the fact that Alaphilippe really kind of fell off there at the end of the season, I guess, convinced me otherwise. Um, I'm, I'm with you, man. I'm throwing my weight behind Roglic too. I saw him at the UAE Tour, how strong he was, how smart he was, how ruthless he was in some of these races. Um, and we saw that just carry on throughout the season. And, you know, you compare it to where he was last year and you got to say, you know, he took a big step up this year. He had a lot of pressure on him this year and he still uh, still got the job done. I mean, he, he doesn't have a Sky Ineos machine backing him. Um, I, I, look, nothing to, t- n- to take nothing away from Bernal. I mean, he had an amazing season. He won the Tour de France. He won Paris-Nice. Um, he won the Tour de Suisse. Um, but Roglic had more wins. They were over a longer period of time. I give it to Roglic. What about a sprinter? What can you say about the best sprinters? Who's winning the sprinter debate? We have guys like Gronoweg and Elia Viviani. We have Caleb Ewan, some older guys in there too. Who's your sprinter of the year? Yeah, it was, it was an interesting year in the sprints. I'm, I'm a big sprinter fan, and a lot of people bemoan the sprints. They say they're boring, sprint stages are boring, but I, I'm firmly committed to, I think, sprinting is a, a, a thrilling discipline, and, and the whole dynamics of sprint stages, even though they sometimes kind of seem boring, they're pretty exciting to watch, if you ask me, and, and they're, they deserve to be a part of uh, any Grand Tour. Um, I think this year was interesting. We saw kind of really a generational change, you know, you know, uh, Cavendish, man, did not win a race all year. I know he's had some health issues and everything. Marcel Kittle pulled the plug on his career, man. He's, he's done. He's not even there anymore. Greipel, uh, you know, his light's fading. Um, Viviani, not quite as sharp as he was. As he, he was the dominant spinner last year without question. Uh, and even Gaviria didn't have a great year. But we saw uh, Groenvega got the most wins going into this, this last World Tour race. Uh, but you also saw some guys, you know, Pascal Ackerman had some great uh, sprints. Uh, Sean Bennett, Caleb Ewan, you know, emerged really surprisingly as the top sprinter at the Tour this year, won three stages. So 
I think it's it's a pretty exciting time in the sprints. I think it's been it's deeper in the sprints than it's ever been before because you still have guys like Sagan banging around. You know, he's going to get up. He's going to get his sprint wins when it counts in these big races. Um, and then, uh, but Groenvega going into his last uh, a weekend, it kind of holds the uh, sprint uh, king of the year title with 15 victories. And I think it's Ackerman's racing in the China race. If he wins every race there, he can kind of bounce ahead of him. You know, five stages in China is not equal to, I think, uh, you know, the rest of the world tour calendar. Yeah, no, Grunewagen had a great year. I got to say, I, I'm going to put my hand up for Caleb Ewan just because I never thought Caleb Ewan was going to win a Tour de France stage. As much hype as there was around him, especially from our Australian fans, talking about his, you know, his low sprinting style and his accelerations. I just, I I didn't think it was a gimmick. I just didn't put him in the same category as Kittle, Sagan, Gaviria, those guys. So for him to come out and win three stages, that really, that shut me up. I was very impressed by Caleb Ewan. Um, Chapeau to our fast men. So I guess the real lessons from this week's episode of the Vel News podcast, become a fan of Balcomolema's, uh, follow the Italian autumn classics and cast your vote uh, for your cyclist of the year. I say just tweet it directly at Andrew Hood morning or night. Just send him things on Twitter about your various opinions on who had the best year in pro cycling. That, that, that works for you, right, Hoodie? No, oh, I love that. I love that. I love, uh, I love getting those uh, uh, Twitter alerts at three in the morning. <laughs> but please, do. I, I, it's interesting because um, our friend Neil Rogers, I think he put a Twitter poll up uh, between Ala Philippe, uh, Roglic, and Bernal, and Ala Philippe was is, is winning the court of popular opinion. Interesting. How about Vanderpool? We're gonna get to. We'll get to Vanderpool, I think, later in the year because. Vanderpool season, you know, okay, road racing, it's pretty good, but you start throwing in stuff like cyclocross world championships and all those world cups, and then three mountain bike world cup wins against Nino Schurter, the most successful man in, in that sport's history. I think you start making a case there for something even a little bit bigger than uh, road racer of the year. Hoodie, that's going to do it for us this week. Thanks for tuning in to the Velo News podcast. For Andrew Hood, it's Fred Dreyer. We will check in with you next week. <laughs>